Welcome to Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we have another preseason edition of The Deciding Point where we break down our top 10 Division I men's and women's college tennis teams heading into the 2024 season. Now, it's worth noting we are less than three weeks away from the start of the season. I know I speak for all of us when I say we are eagerly anticipating that first ball being struck, that first overruled being dished out, and of course that first 4-3 finish. But before we can get to any of that, we got to get through previewing our top 10 teams heading into the year. And some of you will notice we are at our number six men's team here today. That as means we have officially reached the halfway mark, which of course officially means the college tennis season is inching closer and closer. And joining me on today's podcast, as he always does, to help break down another top 10 men's Division I team heading into the 2024 season is a man you all know best as the forefather of the college tennis ranks formula. Predictions never far from the listed UTR, the lean, mean Michigan Wolverine, whose holiday spirit of choice, of course, is bourbon. It's our dear friend, Chris Hallioris. Chris, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. A merry belated Christmas to you. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. I mean, you know, it's always a good time of year. We got, we're almost to college tennis. We got Christmas, which means we got the family. Uh, everybody made it in for for me, except for one of my daughters. So we all had a good day. Uh, a good day yesterday, uh, and I'm uh, I'm ready to do some some college tennis pontificating here. I love to hear that. Are gifts a big thing on Christmas in the Hallioris household? Is everyone dishing out gifts? If so, what's the best you gave? What's the best you got? You know, I feel bad because it was huge when my mom was alive. Like we would, even when we turned adults, and that's a like for us, it was when the kids were actually kids. You know, now my kids are like you know. 31, uh, yeah, adults. 27. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they're all, they're all gruskin and older. But, uh, <laughs> the, the, so the, the gift, the gift giving is kind of, well, plus the gifts just get more expensive at that age. So it's like people get one or two gifts instead of when you're kids and you get like this plethora of $15 toys. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's still, yeah, we still, we still do it not as much uh, as, as we did. And of course, you know, half of mine have to be bourbon related. So it's always a good Christmas for me. (laughs) That's what I I like to hear. Well, first of all, let me just say that I almost introduced you as the Cracked Rackets Grinch, but then I realized the better, we both, we all agree the Cracked Rackets Grinch is Westoff, right? Because in the sense that, not that he's like dispirited, but the sense that like, me and Dalton are always too spirited. And so it's like he's got to be the dose of reality to be like, guys, let's rein it in. We can't do that to the studio. We can't spend that much money that we don't have. Um, and so anyways, I'm glad to hear you are a very festive man. To hear that gifts are a big thing in the Hallioris household, I love to hear. Do you know what the motto is in the Gruskin household? Can you guess it? No. Now, I'm What's glad you didn't try something because I feel like your guess would have been problematic. But just so you know, every day is Hanukkah in the Gruskin uh, household. Well, as my well, that, and I don't know what would, would have been problematic. It's just that I, I couldn't come up with the appropriate Jewish-related <laughs> motto that I, I, I didn't know what to say. Yeah, that's what my parents – because someone asked me recently. I've never been asked like this. They're like, oh, my God, you get eight days of gifts? And I was like, well, I guess if you actually followed Hanukkah by the letter of the law, like that does seem pretty cool. But – 
again, my parents are like Alex. Every day is Hanukkah. Yeah. And they're like, what yeah. do you possibly need from – by the way, I'd like to point out they're 100% correct. When I, As my dad always says, when he comes back in his next life, he wants to be born as his kid because, God, do his kids have it easy. Well, uh, I was going to say that was that was the, the most regretted present I did not get this year. I keep hoping to find under the tree every year. Yeah. That's my Gruskin adoption certificate. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, that might be lost in the mail, but the holiday card is incoming, my friend. So you can be on the lookout for that. You still have one more gift on the horizon. But in this holiday spirit, and of course, a happy holidays, whether it's Christmas, whether it's Hanukkah, whether it's Kwanzaa, whether it's one of the many holidays that are available to you in the month of December, we hope you're all enjoying celebrating it. We hope you're all enjoying some time with your family, some times for reflection, of course, as we all prepare to ring in the new year. And in that spirit, Spirit, Chris, I want to have a little fun with a little opening holiday-related tangent for all of our college tennis fans tuning in today. And that tangent is going to be involving reflection back on the 2023 season. Longtime listeners of this podcast know there's nothing we enjoy doing more than offering takes throughout the course of the year. That's what Chris and I do. That's what we're brought here to do each and every day, offer our takes on the various teams, offer our takes on the various storylines, narratives playing out in the college tennis world. In that spirit, approximately five minutes before we started recording today, I came to Chris Helly Orson said, hey, I have this idea. Let's reflect on the things we were most right and most wrong about in 2023. Do you want to start glass half full or glass half empty, Chris Hallioris? I'll let you take the lead. What is oh. one thing you were most right or wrong about last season? Well, I got to start glass half full. And I think, uh, I think actually for almost all of us on the crack rackets front, the thing that we have to come away with from, from last season thinking we were the most right about was just the top teams. I mean, we, we covered this and for those that didn't listen to it, and it was probably our very first preview uh, pod for, for this year is like we had nine of the top 10 and we had the final rankings for the top several in order. I mean, it's not that, okay. Yeah. We didn't take a rocket scientist to go. Yeah. Virginia, Ohio state are going to be really good. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, okay. We, we knew that, but, uh, but to come out, uh, you know, and and have a nine of the ten uh, there, I think that that has to be what we were what we were most right about. Directionally, you're certainly correct. And, you know, again, you'd have to go through the nuances like some of us remember someone picking Michigan to win a national championship last year out of spite for another person on this podcast. And well, you, you didn't get we haven't got to the most wrong. Yet. Yeah, well, I'm <laughs> saying like I don't even know if that's the thing you were most wrong about last season or any of us were most wrong about last season. But more broadly, directionally, I agree with you. And in that spirit, we'll start glass half full. I have called four straight UNC Women's National Indoor Championships. No one drives the UNC Women's Dynasty bandwagon harder than me. And to see that come, you know, again, the continued faith in Coach Calbus, the continued faith in that squad that there wasn't this mythical thing holding them up and that it was just never going to happen. It wasn't in the cards. It was very clear last year's team had all the cards, all the talent, and that continued faith in that UNC program, Coach Calvis, Coach Thompson, Fiona, and Scotty, and all these pieces that have built things up over the years. 
I like to think that's the thing I was most right about, Chris, because has anyone been beating the UNC drum harder than me? Like, I, that's probably my most accurate take. I'm trying to th- like again, right? Like, I think I'm pretty right about that. Uh, that's a boring one, but like, I feel like that's the thing I always talk about. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm not going to argue that at all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry. Right. Aside from any other things, North Carolina related that you would have liked to be driving, I'm not going there. Uh, yeah, I would have liked to have some Jays on my feet. There's no doubt about that. That would be nice if I could. <laughs> I, rock I, I still remember. Actually, one of that was one of my most fond memories of NCAAs was being down courtside with Mrs. Calbus trying to get to the court and being denied. From, <laughs> nobody would let her in at all, and I had to throw my press pass up into the bleachers so, so she could flash it coming in and actually get down on court. That was absolutely ridiculous. That's probably the thing the NCAA got most wrong last season. Whenever yeah. a coach has to yell, wait, that's my wife. That's that's probably not the best thing. Um, and yeah, again, what went right is that she did eventually get to work her way yeah. on the court. Let's go the other end, have some fun. What's the thing you were most wrong about? I mean, it's the thing I'm the most wrong about every year, Gruskin, and we're going to rehash the same thing I said on the first podcast. Frickin' Stanford. (laughs) (laughs) I continue, and I and I and I told you, I swore I would do everything in my power to not put them in the top ten this year, and it's impossible. I I had to, but yet again, we we do it last year, and yet again, they don't end up there. I mean, sooner or later, the streak has to end. But I mean, by far, that's I. I mean, I always love the the roster, and it just never seems to work for whatever reason. One of these years, it's going to work, but I'm always, 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 always wrong there. You, you do have a Stanford blind spot. That is something you should correct moving into 2024. I agree with you there. I don't. I'm trying to think if that's the thing I most objected that you said last season. Like the thing that made me most angry. Like I'm starting to think back on it. And this is not meant to be a direct criticism of him, but like I was so certain Destonich was going to have another like twenty-eight and one season or like twenty-six and one season and be the guy. And you know, again, there was some regression back to the mean last year, which was just a stark lesson to anyone who follows this sport to take only one loss at the number one singles position and try to replicate that the next year is damn near impossible to do. There's only two guys who have done it in the modern era: Steve Johnson and Samdev Devarman. Like, they're the only two who came back year after year and dominated at the number one spot, regardless of the circumstances. And it's just like, again, the reason I bring that up and trying to take lessons from it is like Pedro Rodinas last year was what, like 23 and one at the number two spot. And even if you're still really high on the sophomore, you're just in a no ad format more likely to lose more than once throughout the course of a season than you were the prior year. And so it's like, it's little things like that, like, Destonich, not, you know, the the regression mean there. Lerner and JPJ both getting eligible, I think is something we both got very wrong because we saw JPJ by indoors. We saw Lerner by, you know, March or April, whatever it may be. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll just go on the record now and say next year when we have this conversation, the most wrong will be the fact that I'm saying there's no way in heck Boyton gets eligible. And then we'll be back here next year talking about how he played NCA. I'll you know, wake one like, number. I'll wake one he, the NCAs. He yeah. plays like three matches and then the NCAA tournament. You know, whatever. <laughs> That's a good one. That's <laughs> funny. That's really, really good. Um, Man, I was still all in on Texas A&M with Brandstein, and obviously she got injured last year. So I'm not going to say I was wrong about being all in on an A&M team that ultimately got knocked off in the quarterfinals because that was injury-related. 
I was all in on the ACC and it was an all ACC final. Like, again, we're talking about things I was really right about now instead of things I was wrong about. Um, I'm like, you know what it is? I'm going to take the L. Even knowing what we saw in 2022, we both didn't believe in Virginia. Like, how have we not learned our lesson by now, Chris? It's the, they're the opposite of Stanford, the inverse, the antithesis, or if they're the thesis, Stanford's the antithesis, where it's like, we did the same shit, Chris, a second straight year, and it's just like worth noting, in the last 20 years, two teams, two teams have gone to Columbus and beaten Ohio State. Oklahoma, who made three state uh, straight NCAA championships, 2014 to 2016, and Virginia, who have now won back-to-back NCAAs, looking for a third as well. If you go and win in Columbus, we are learning. You will make an NCAA final someday. And like, what the f*** were we thinking, Chris? We're just, yeah. we did the same thing. Yeah. I, yeah. We're going to do it again this year, probably too. No, see, this is the, yeah, I, I was going to save this take for at whatever point we get to Virginia. <laughs> Spoiler alert on how I voted. Uh, I sort of feel like this year, because I, I feel like I'm indebted to no matter what they do all season to vote Virginia number one every week. Like, I don't even care. They could lose three matches. They can go one and two at indoors. I should just vote them number one every week because come May, <laughs> they have to be number one. Like we can have the, the Virginia, Texas debate all day long. And hopefully we get, you know, at least one, if not more great matches between those schools, you know, not to mention Ohio State, TCU, et cetera, that are out there still. But my goodness. Yeah, we we yeah, we just totally screwed up. Not not giving them, you know, more credit. Mm-hmm. And the last and very least one, we continue to <laughs> learn this lesson the hard way. Like, we need a national deadline of, like, coaches, submit your rosters and a list of three players you think might arrive in the month of December on your team to us by November 1st so that we can do these preseason rankings accurately. Because even though we started in December, Chris, we still have some omissions. The problem is those coaches, even if they're comfortable letting us know, they would have to let us know and tell us. But you're not allowed to tell anybody else because they don't want it getting out. So, you know, even if we knew Steph was coming back, even if we knew Harry was signing, you know, Maria, you know, they're just going to be like, sure, I'm telling you guys. But, um, you know, you got to wait till we actually announce it in the press release before you let anybody else know. And so the best we could do was come on here and go. Yep, we're making Michigan State number 10 for an outside shot because, well, you'll just have to wait and see. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. And again, tweet at us, please. Instagram us, whatever the thing is, or X us, whatever we're saying, at Crack Rackets, at AL Gruskin, at College Tennis Ranks. What's the thing you were most right about and most wrong about as it relates to college tennis in 2023? That said... 2023 is now almost in the rearview mirror. We're ready to look towards 2024. And apologies to South Carolina fans who maybe were looking for something other than that 15-minute monologue or tangent to start the show. But that's how Chris and I get loose. We haven't recorded in about a week. I need to make sure he's at his best as, again, we have hit the halfway hump. We are now at number six in our preseason rankings and number six Going into the 2024 season for us, a team who you could argue, did they overperform? Did they underperform? Did they get things just right last season? I actually think that's a fascinating conversation as it relates to number six, South Carolina, who will be the uh, topic of our discussion today. Now, again, 
it is worth noting right off here at the top, you know, the South Carolina team provided us countless thrillers throughout the course of last season. Most notably, of course, they were the one team to go on the road in the Sweet 16. They knock off Tennessee in what was an absolutely thrilling 4-2 match in Knoxville. You look at you know some of the other dramas along the way, them losing that 4-2 match to AM at the SEC tournament, knock them out of top eight seed status. And, you know, again, from there, things got a little funky. They dealt with a few injuries midway through the season, but Again, this team played some fun matches. The 4-3 loss to Auburn, the 4-3 escape against LSU. Obviously, this team maybe provided the most shocking post-national indoor data point of all when they beat Ohio State 4-1 in Columbia in an outdoor match that was kind of like, wait, what are we doing from, you know, what what's going on right now? I mean, look, for South Carolina last season, 22-7 and overall on the year. You look at what they were able to do in conference play, 8-4 and overall, obviously, disappointing SEC tournament for them, but then none of that mattered once they got to the SEC, uh, once they got to the NCAA tournament, when they were able to go on the road, beat a Tennessee team that had really good doubles across the lineup and straight up beat them in doubles. And then, you know, again, see Thompson, see uh, Samuel, see all, uh, I forget who was the fourth guy who was able to flip things in three sets, Lambling at three, uh, at four, excuse me. This team just had an edge to them. This team just had some grit to it. You know, again, they like to say that dog in them, that it factor that can't be quantified. This team seemed to have it last season. And it again, to say why it's worth mentioning that at the beginning, a lot of that goes back to their head coach, Josh Goffey, who is just widely renowned as one of the best coaches we clearly have in all of college tennis. And you know, again, this is a team that when Coach Goffey took over in 2011, it was a team that finished 6-18 and overall in the season, a team that really struggled comparatively to the rest of the SEC field. Well, just look at what they've been able to do over the past six, seven NCAA tournaments. You want to go all the way back to 2017. That team goes 21-9 and overall. They were able to reach the round of 32. 2018, 19-9, round of 32. 2019, 18-10 overall. They reached the round of 32. Of course, again, you look at what they've been able to do in this COVID era, 2021, 17 and 10. They reached the round of 16 for the first time in Coach Goffey's era. Play a really fun match against Texas that those that were there remember quite well. 2022, last year, 23 and 7. Another, two years ago, excuse me, another step forward, another round of 16. Last year, it's another step of progress. Again, 22 and 7, but making the quarterfinals of the NCAAs for the first time under Coach Coach Goffey, having a duo in Samuel, in Thompson, who win a major fall title. I believe they were the fall match champs or All-Americans, whichever one it was, but they win one of those titles. They were the prohibitive number one doubles team for the majority of this season, Chris. This is a program. This is a coach with a new na- a new indoor facility, by the way. All arrows seem to be pointing up. So I'm curious, again, with that framing, 2023. Just right? Overperformance? Underperformance? Where are you with this program right now? Clearly one of the rising programs we have in this sport. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for last year, I can't go anywhere but overperform and and completely on the heels of, of Thompson and Samuel, right? I mean, 
That it's the one team we, we you know we talked in our intro, kind of poking fun, uh, if you will, at my blind spot for Stanford. They were the one team we had in the top ten that didn't finish there. Well, who was the team that we didn't have in the top ten that did? It was South Carolina, uh, and I just don't think that we we saw that that coming necessarily because we just we felt so strongly that there were they were just too weak down low to compete, uh, you know, with these other teams. And I mean, the, the, the work that coach Goffey and staff did particularly in the bottom of that lineup early in the season with Jake Beasley, who they turned into an absolute aggressor coming to the net and just knocking off guys that frankly, he had no business beating. Uh, and it was simply an effort to play a style that they knew could potentially pay dividends, and it did. Uh, and to your point, yeah, I mean, Coach Goffey, there there are teams and coaches out there that we know are are teams. You know, a, a lot of a lot of listeners may or may not see it. You see the guys play tennis. You know whether they win or lose uh, as individuals. But there is much more team aspect to this sport uh, than you would want to admit. And and there are coaches that a only recruit the highest character guys and aren't and if they find that they got one by them that wasn't a, a good seed they quickly dispatch of them and they make sure that there's good culture on the team the guys love each other they are a team and these guys are all of that and it's always going to be the case with a coach Goffey team they're going to be good kids they're going to be a team and they all play for each other and you know probably couldn't care less whether they're playing number you know if you told uh, you know if you told Samuel and Thompson they needed to play 3 and 4 this year because somebody was better to be like okay whatever we got to do to win uh and that's that's what the team is but yeah i think for me it was definitely an overperformance i i thought i mean i'll be the first one to admit i thought way too weak at 5 and 6 coming into last year when there were way too many rosters that were COVID laden rosters with, you know, fifth year guys that, that low that were just going to beat up on them and they wouldn't be able to sustain it. And the fact that Samuel and Thompson were both able to go 20 and four uh, at, you know, at the one, two spots, uh, that's just, that's, you know, and as good as, and the fact that they were almost an automatic in doubles, give them one out of the three doubles. So all you gotta do is split doubles and you're giving them one and two, they're up three Oh, it's hard to beat. Very well said. I would point out, to add to your argument, this was also a team that had a guy in Daniel Rodriguez who had made an NCAA singles final who the year prior had gone 22-3 and at the top spot, had a really good pro summer, pro fall, and of course there were some rumors, some lingering. Would he come back? Would he elect to turn pro? Had he come back? Now again, he's at that number one spot. Samuel, who went 16-5 and at number two in 2022. Thompson, who went 19-5 and at three in 2022. Like If you bring back that full top three, now that probably means expectations for this group would have been make the quarterfinals. Expectations for this group would have been compete for the conference title as they were able to do all season. Why it's an overperformance, to your point, is that Rodriguez did not come back. I think had he come back, then again, it's probably an as expected for a group that, again, has continued to make, dare I say, this linear progress, right, Chris? Getting a little bit better each and every season. And again, why you have to say underperformance, to your point, and this is how we can start to get into the roster, it's one thing to be really good at two. It's one thing to be really good at three. But to have to move up another spot— 
as both Samuel and Thompson were forced to do. And to be able to sustain that level of success, that's maybe the single most difficult thing to do in all of college tennis. Even making that jump from just three to two, obviously, especially from two to one, you're going to play the best of the best each and every week, particularly for South Carolina, given they're in the SEC. And, you know, again, the caliber of player Samuel was facing a Monday, one day, Thompson, uh, excuse me, Monday, one day, ne- Axel Nev with his experience the next day, Ethan Quinn the next day. And then after that, oh, by the way, you know, even I'm trying to think of like a lesser school who like even uh, like a Tyler Stice, like that's a miserable day at the office. You don't want to have to face Tyler Stice on a Sunday if you have some ailments and, you know, it's a little hot outside and sticky in South Carolina. Like, that's the last thing I would want to have to deal with on that day. And man, you just mentioned it. Match in, match out. You knew exactly what you were going to get from Thompson and Samuel up top. And to see their development, again, the level they were able to play to be the staples, not just 19 and four respectively at the number one spot and two in singles, but 17 and five at the number one double spot as well. They knew pre, you know, it's a lot of pressure to go into a match and say, hey, you guys are two and a half of our points. And like, we need your two and a half for our match calculus pretty darn clearly. And for them to continue to perform the way they did, match in, match out. I mean, tip of the cap, we talk about most MVPs and most valuable points. No one was more valuable to their team last season than Toby Samuel and Connor Thompson and what they were able to do at the top of the lineup. Now, that's the case for the overperformance. I do want to point out, like, I'm just going to read you some numbers, Chris. Oh, yeah. Let's, yeah. let's go to the 500 records everywhere else. Yes. Yeah. Well, so you beat me to it. And again, you this finished is, number eight with that. This is exactly the point 11 and 11 at three, 17 and 10 at four. 13 and 12 at 5, 12 and 11 at 6. All right, we got a little uncertainty. Like, we think we feel decent about 4, but like, what are we doing at all these other spots? It's a flip of the coin. And again, puts that much more pressure on them to execute in doubles. Where, by the way, Hool and Lambling, 16 and 4 at number 3. Like, I guess here's the comp I want to make for 2023 South Carolina to go full circle, Chris. Doubles, one, two, find one more. Where have we heard that formula before, Chris? That sounds a lot like a 2019 Wake Forest team that was Goyo, uh, Risokos, Botzer, and find one more. Whether it's Banthia, whether it's doubles, whether it's a Kungu day, like whatever it may be. And again, I do want to, I would love to see the South Carolina team play in that 2019 season because again, it just like it, I, I, that's my comp for this team is like to have such a rigid path. It was such a fascinating season in retrospect, Chris, final reflections on 2023 for the Gamecocks go to you. Do you yeah, like that I comp mean, by the way? Yeah, I, I do like that comp and it's, I mean, it, it's amazing when you look back and, and you think, man, one and two were tremendous. And yeah, I mean, story was good. I mean, they ended up 17 and 10, but he was like 11 and three at that in the four spot or something like that. But when you look at three, five and six, and they were 500 and only one over 500 in those, that's three spots that we're talking about 500 records. And look, let's be honest, if we're talking 500 records, they're really not 500 in those positions because, you know, they played some non-conference matches that they're going to win, you know, against, you know, teams that are good teams, but 
you know, they're not going to lose to Charlotte. They're not going to lose to Penn. They're not going to lose to the Citadel. They're probably, they're not going to lose, you know, to, to Clemson. Those are all wins right there. And then you still only end up 500 in those positions. That means in the matches that mattered, they were well under 500 in those positions. So for them to be able to go, yeah, we're giving up three spots right there, uh, you know, more than half the time and we can still do it. That's, you know, that's a team that I think you would usually say, all right, if you're that good at one and two, oh, you, you might be a top 15 with that top 10. That's a huge stretch. But no, that's because not only were they so dominant there, but to your point, doubles. Yes, you got Samuel and Thompson, but then Lambling and who will they step up? And now it makes it it's almost like three points every match. Yeah, well, the other thing, and again, it's both a positive and a negative for last year's roster, and it's how we can start to move towards this season as well, is like, they had some familiar faces. That would be the case for last year. Wasn't an overperformance, but was just right. It's like, they did have a fifth-year Jake Beasley, who, by the way, started the year really strong and kind of got this South Carolina team off to the right sort of push. And, you know, again, he ultimately finishes 10-7 and and uh, excuse me, not 10-7, and seven. he ultimately finishes 11-9 and nine in dual match play, but... You know, he was a fifth year. Lambling was a fifth year as well, and he ultimately goes 11 and 12 in dual match play, but was obviously able to flip the big one against Mitsui when it mattered most. Again, glass half empty. You did have a couple of fifth years. You did have some certainty. It felt like everyone in their lineup had, you know, even Story, all these other guys, had repetitions coming into the season, and that their level vacillated so much match to match. Maybe that's something you're a little bit concerned about if you're Coach Goffey. At the same time, the compartmentalization this team was able to do, the self-belief of saying, hey, who cares that you got the last one? If you can get the next one, that's all we need you for on that day because we have the horses we can ride as well. It all just comes back to you're starting a program tomorrow. Is Goffey your first pick to be the head coach? The Halioris University just opened. Yeah, I don't know how it's not. I love Josh Goffey. And that's, I mean, you know, to me, the the first first and foremost is always going to be the guys that recruit character. And you have to be a character guy for me. You know, none of this, yeah, we'll take a questionable guy and see if we can straighten him out. We all know who some of those programs are. I'm not even, I'm not in there. It's, you know, you're either the character guy or you're not. The only thing I think that would be, you know, this the question mark, if you will, for 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 coach Gaffey is if you were if you were the AD for the you know for the top schools out there looking for your next head coach like a USC or so you know somebody with that kind of past that you expect national championships is he's still at a spot where he's he, he's doing it but a little bit under the radar you're not getting necessarily the the top flight kid you know you're not getting your top americans for the most part going yep i want to go to south carolina that's not the school on the radar for them he's finding sort of the you know those kids under the radar but making them top tens that next step is can you recruit with the best of them when you're going after you know the number one junior in the world or the number you know the top five kids in the united states uh He's, but he's shown he can do everything else. I have no doubt that he can do that too. I'm, but I'm, I'm for sure for all reasons above talent development, recruiting, the way he, the way he handles the team, uh, and everything related. He, he's my guy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, Toby Samuel was a top 100 junior in the world, but Connor Thompson wasn't. 
I'm pretty sure James Story wasn't either coming over from Memphis. And, you know, again, to see who will – oh, no, Story was a top 100 junior, 88 in the world. Shout out to him. But, like, to see the development of guys like Lampling, Hool, et cetera, there's no doubt Coach Goffey can get these guys to the best version of themselves on a tennis court, get them believing themselves. I will say – Andreas has to be considered the best coach in the nation right now just because back-to-back titles, the way he has gotten that team to click perfectly in May to bring in a Fonseca to have this Dietrich and the recruiting success at the highest levels as well on top of the development. He's probably the guy right now, but to your point, I think consensus would be if you pulled coaches, you pulled people in the know, Josh Goffey belongs in that conversation. And, you know, again, I will say... He's going to need to pull out all the tricks of the trade this year as we look at this number six South Carolina roster, a roster that, for the record, only loses Hool, only loses, uh, excuse me, not Hool, only loses Beasley, only loses Lambling off of last year's squad. Two guys that, again, on paper, on paper being the key word, a combined 22 and 21 overall in dual matches in singles last year. Now it's worth noting Lambling 17 and four in uh, in doubles as well. And I do feel like him and him and Jake ate. A, they were a lot of they were innings eaters, right? It was like in baseball if you're down seven two in the fourth inning, they were the long relievers. The pitchers was like, all right, we can go give you four in a spot here if you need B. You lose that institutional know-how, though. You lose that experience off of this year's roster. And while you do bring back that big three of Samuel Thompson uh, story, who we can talk about here in a second, Chris, I want to ask you about the rest of this roster first. Because, again, I keep coming back to that 2019 Wake Forest team. It feels like if you're going to make an argument— for number six, South Carolina, it's always going to start with, well, they could sweep the top three. Like Samuel, Store, uh, Samuel Thompson, Story, especially Samuel and, and Thompson, as we saw last year, they're going to be up 2-0 on you. And just from there, given the lack of experience in particular at the top for many of these SEC schools, that is an inherited uh, – It's just an advantage. There's no doubt about it uh, for this South Carolina squad. The question is, Chris, as you look beyond that for the returners in particular, uh, Lucas Da Silva, who we got to saw a little bit of at the end, Casey Houle, who for what it's worth last season on the roster, able to go 13 and 12 between the four and five spots. You've got a Carter Morgan as well. Again, limited contributions from him throughout the course of the year. Those are the returners outside of the big three, Chris. Do you see anything from that group in the fall? How are you? Who of those people? Who of that group should we expect to contribute right away, or bigger yeah. perhaps this year? Well, I would say fr- from those re- from the returners for sure, it's Casey Hool. I mean, I think he's gonna he's gonna step up. Probably. I mean, I feel like just because, and from an experience standpoint, he's been there now a couple of years. He knows. Uh, he knows what to expect and they should be counting on him that he's probably the guy you lean at to at least start the year uh, in the four spot for them behind, you know, the three guys we've already talked about. So for sure, they're going to be counting on him. Uh, and I think he, I think he's going to be just fine. I think they've got, I, I think we actually have a really good, you know, seven deep roster here for, for South Carolina. The question is just going to be, how much can they count on the freshman? But Casey Houle, I don't think they're going to have any problem. He's going to probably be a guy to play for. It may be five if one of the freshmen really steps up. But 
you know, spots he's familiar in from last year, you know, he, he was performed adequately. I think he'll be, I think he'll be fine, but he's the guy from a returning standpoint outside of those top three, they're counting on the most. 12 and eight overall was Hool in the fall. That's the team leader and wins. By the way, they didn't have Thompson Samuel story at all this fall at South Carolina. So all the guys got the focus, the reps, I'm sure they were looking for. And I'm sure, by the way, if you're coach Goffey to not have to worry about those other three and just get to dig in with these new guys was something I'm sure he ex- enjoyed experiencing in the fall. You look for Casey's fall, though, tw- again, 12 and eight overall. Good win over Jake Krug of Duke. Good win over Nick Kotzen of Columbia. Good win over NC State's Lucas Staheli. I don't know. Like, again, after that, oh, good win over Carlos Ozalans, one in love. But, you know, again, you could beat Carlos Ozalans, one in love one day, and then the next day he could show up and beat you, one in love. So I don't know how much I'm reading into that. Still, even the losses, though, like three sets, 7-6 in the third with Catry, 7-5 in the third with Homan, uh, 6-3 in the third with Etienne Dene. You are right. Like Casey Hool had a good fall. Even if 12 and 8 isn't like a, you know, you win 60% of your matches, you're probably not hanging that up on the refrigerator. I do think that was a good fall for him to have. The guy I'm looking for though, Chris, is Lucas Da Silva of that group because Da Silva the sophomore, 6 foot 5, again limited action last season. We saw him just play nine dual matches, 4 and 5 at the number 6 spot. But if you watched him play, at NCAAs, if yes, he lost his match to Rodriguez in Knoxville. Yeah, he was down to Aramilli of Texas. But man, does he have the sophomore from Brazil have some serious, serious weapons, Chris? And you know, again, looking at what he did this fall, ten and four uh, overall in the fall. You look at the big wins uh, for De Silva, who he was facing throughout the course. He gets a win over Andrew Dale of Duke, who lost what like one match, two matches last year at that number five spot. He also gets a win over Jay Krug, Michael Heller, a lot of Duke centric matches for the man, but. I think that's the guy I'm watching to pop this year, Chris, even beyond the freshman who we'll get to in a second. It's the weapons he had and the size and just like if I were to build the specimen for Coach Goffey to get to work with, I think De Silva would be the guy I pick. And just with the size and weapons, I feel like the best version of South Carolina sees him ascending to a even maybe over a story at a three or a four this year. Like, I am that big of a believer in his upside. I know we haven't watched a ton of him, but I'm curious if you see that. Well, there's definitely a ton of upside. And I think that's the, he's one of the guys you have to look for for that. <clears throat> that sort of jump in the in the second year after getting a good a good year to sort of be an understudy, if you will, uh, that he's a guy that I think they can do a lot with, and he definitely has potential to be a solid uh, a solid player in that lineup. He's got the weapons, and to your point, if he can get in the lineup, it probably does better for them to play him higher rather than lower, just because of the weapons he's got, and let some of the other guys uh, to play a little lower. And and on the you know. In the back of my mind at the same time is the fact that De Silva's Brazilian, Josh Goffey's Brazilian. There's got to be a little bit of a, you know, the ability for him to sort of make it more of a, you know, more of a home family atmosphere and, and make him very comfortable. I think uh, I think it'll all click for him this year. I, it's going to be a really healthy battle for them. Like I said, I think there's seven deep and those four through seven guys are going to have a really good healthy battle for which three are in the lineup every day. And we're probably going to see, especially early, a whole bunch of different rotations until until they settle in on, on kind of who the odd man out is. 
Do we need to have a James Story conversation quickly? Because I agree with everything you said about those two. And by the way, again, no disrespect to Carter Morgan, but I do think Hool, De Silva, both entered the season expecting to play right away. No doubt about that, even though they do have two talented freshmen who we can get to in a moment. My biggest question is surrounding James Story. Because I look at James Story's season last year, 15-6 and six overall, 11-3 and three at the four spot, 4-3 and three at the three it feels like there were some empty calories there, Chris. Like when I look back at James Story's season, fifteen and six sounds good. I don't know if he had as good of a season as I think both of us were expecting to have in year two at the helm there. And like again, we've talked about this presumption. Look, uh, Toby Samuel is top five hundred in the world right now. He maybe had as good of a pro summer as any player returning to college this year. And Connor Thompson's just got that dog in him. Like, I don't know if he's going to replicate 19-4. and four. I know if it's three all on the line, I will take the ball being on Connor Thompson's racket and roll with my chances from there because he just has that killer in him. You know, that it factor that you need. We talk about it being a big three returning, or at least that's how I framed it earlier. Where are you with James Story entering this season? Again, a guy who started his career playing number one for Memphis— some injury-related issues, but a lot of hot and cold from him, it's felt like, during his time at South Carolina. Do you expect him to play three, or do you think there might actually be some room for negotiation there? I think there's always room for negotiation, but (laughs) I absolutely expect him to play three. He's also the vocal social media leader here. So please, James, all comments directed towards Gruskin, not me. I know they're coming. (laughs) Uh, but uh, no, I absolutely expect him to play three. And I think, yeah, I mean, you could maybe make a little case that you expected potentially just a little bit more. I don't know how much. I mean, maybe there were a couple losses you didn't expect. But man, once we got into, you know, to January and we were we were playing dual matches like, I mean, he, he beat Alexander Bernard in straight sets when they had the win over Ohio State. And, you know, and that's outdoors and who the hell wants to play Bernard outdoors I'll play seven up I'll play him at one through six uh in my lineup outdoors every day of the week uh I mean you know he there aren't that many you know bad losses he loses to both Braswell's Marson and Ewan Lumsden okay maybe but outside of he beat everybody else he was supposed to beat and he lost to Kreuter he lost to Poling okay those I don't don't consider those bad losses but to your point you know, he beats, he beats Taha body. He beats Bernard, you know, he beats Bicknell twice. Uh, I don't know what more really you want. That's for me. That's a great three. Uh, I'll, I'll take him at three all day. I guess when you like, if I, and I'm not asking you to make a list right now, but if you were to make a list, would you put him as one of the five best number three singles in the country entering the season? I doubt it. But don't they need him to be like, I guess that's what I'm asking is, do they need him to be one of the five best number threes or is another 15 and six year, albeit hopefully this year more at number three than it was at number four last year? Like, is that it? like, I guess what I'm asking is, what do they need out of story? I know. I think if he repeats what he did last year for them, mm-hmm. in all honesty, look, I mean, you lose the leadership, and the, the the question mark to me is what you're losing in doubles when you lose Rafa Lambling, okay? Yeah. 
but they don't, they're not going to miss Lambling's record in singles. I mean, they're going to miss Lambling's freshman year uh, from <laughs> singles, but they don't miss Rafa Lambling's record last year in singles. If Story does what he did last year and he does it at three, and now you're playing between the two freshmen and uh, and De Silva, at, you know, and Hool at four, five, six, they do anything above 500. They're better than they were last year and they finish number eight. Now, I'll say this, if you're if your absolute goal here is it's national title or bust, then yes, story's story's gonna need to be a top five in the nation number three for that to happen. Uh okay. but if you're hey, we're we're hosting, we want to be top eight, we want to host, we want to make final sight and then let things roll. And if we come in as number eight at that, that's fine. We'll take our shot. Then yeah, I I think you get there with story being exactly what he is. Maybe he's not top five in the nation, but he's you know, and only because, I mean, the problem with saying top five in the nation at three is we haven't even gotten to the top four teams that are just so yeah. that, that they're, I'm, I'm already I can't even I'm blanking on necessarily who the three is on everyone. Everyone. Von der Schulenberg, right uh, Schulenberg. I mean, again, a Bailey for Texas. Yeah. Pick your Bailey of choice. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Pennington. I don't know who's three there. Uh, you don't think he'll play one maybe Gorsney or two sorry like yeah I, I, has I even, and then and then whoever the hell three is at Ohio State I mean I, the Stanford yeah. three if Ferry comes and back then, should be pretty good yeah 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 if you have if you have Ferry and already anybody I mean whether you're taking Banerjee or basing or whoever yeah it's um, you're already basic you're already five deep there so yeah I give him top 10 Five, he's going to have to, yeah, he's going to have to have a great year to make it a top five. Not that he can't. To your point, he was a top hundred junior. He's got, he's got that pedigree. He can do it. I have no, I have no doubts. He's also been a guy that's battled some injury. So we'll see how it goes, but I'm not, I'm not worried. The only way I'm worried about story is if there are lingering injuries that are going to cause problems. Yeah. The reason I bring it up is because again, I've learned my lesson. This is what I get most wrong in 2023. It's really difficult to replicate a 20 and four season at a top two spot. Unless you are a Sam dev, unless you are a Stevie, unless you are one of those once in a generation players. And I'm not saying Toby's not because he is already top, you know, again, top 500 in the world. But let's say Connor, instead of going 19 and four goes, I don't know. 16 and six instead, or like 16 and seven there. Still a really good season at the number two spot. The question is you're gaming out. Okay, well, where do the rest of the points come from? And let's say, again, there's a little regression at that number three double spot. Hulan Lambling went 16 and four to ask anyone to do that record in one set of no ad doubles. Good freaking luck. Where are we getting our points from? Team has to be better than 11 and 11 at the number three spot. And Story will probably be the one who defines that outcome, right? Or certainly it feels like it right now that he's the guy who's going to be given that birth, uh, that lane. And again, we'll talk most valuable point in this lineup moving forward. But if this team doesn't just want to compete to make another quarterfinal, if this team wants to take another linear step forward, a, a team which, by the way, there is some urgency this year because Thompson's a senior, because Samuel's a senior, because Story's a senior. Like, this is this group's last run at the big show, and this is a group that has proven. They beat Ohio State outdoors last year, last year's NCAA finals. They have proven they can hang with the best. If James Story has a good year, again, this number six ranking, looks very, very smart. And maybe even we undersell it in retrospect. I guess that's that would be my thoughts on it. Yeah, well, because my take here, 
it's going to it's going to have to be indoors and non-conference because I even though you say it's hard to replicate in if if healthy I'll be very disappointed if Toby Samuel goes something less than 20 and 4 in you know in in singles because look look at the yes the SEC is historically strong but look what's happened in the last year who who is not back that he's going to be playing Ethan Quinn is not back Liam Draxel is not back. Who in the hell is going to beat him in the SEC? You got Johannes Monday at Tennessee, the clear, you know, those two are clearly got to be the top two number ones in the conference. Go beyond that and tell me who he's losing to in the SEC. I don't think he should be losing to anybody. Yeah, there are some guys that might jump up and give him a match. He look, he lost to Tyler Stice last year. He's going to have to play Jovanovic from Mississippi State. Matches that could be, could be tight, but he's going to be a prohibitive favorite in almost every match. So it's going to be those non-conference matches and assuming they get through kickoff weekend, whoever they get to play it indoors, I fully expect him to go 24. And if he's doing that, I fully expect Connor Thompson to do the same thing at number two. Mm-hmm. I expect that performance from them again. So if those two guys do that, which I expect, and I, I understand it's harder to do, but I think just knowing that the competition is actually going to be probably slightly below where it was last year from a conference perspective. It's very, it's, it's very reasonable to expect that they do that. And so story, yeah, big, big pivotal point for them. Well, you mentioned Toby Samuel there. I do think as you're looking breakout fall summers and current ITA rankings, again, he didn't play any college matches, but I do think he had a breakout summer or breakout fall or kind of a consolidating summer and fall, dare I say, on the pro circuit where you mentioned it, the four losses last year in dual match play. 6-3 in the third to Andreas Martin, not a bad loss. 2-2 two and two to Draxel at Kentucky, bad loss by scoreboard, but Draxel's gone. 6-4 in the third to Tyler Stice of Auburn, his one actual bad loss of the season. And then a straight set loss to Monday, which, by the way, he made up for by coming back from a set down and preventing Monday from earning that pivotal third point and giving Tennessee all this momentum in their NCAA round of 16 battle. And by the way, the majority of his 19 wins at the number one spot last year, the majority were straight set victories. When Toby beats you, he beats you pretty good. In fact, only one of his 19 victories at the number one spot was in three sets, and that was 6-1 in the third over Melios Efstathiu, and he had match points to end that one in straight sets, just wasn't able to close it out. I do think he is that good. Like, I think he is, if we're making a short list of who could be the guy in 2024, if Toby Samuel's not on your the guy list, you are now excluded from our the guy conversations. Like, textbook definition of the guy, Chris, is him. But I actually think the breakout star for South Carolina in a fall where, again, we didn't know many of the faces. Like, I had never seen Yolani Saar play before. I had never seen Sean Dariabegi play before. And even De Silva, Hool, guys who, yeah, got reps, but it was very much a prove-it fall. I think Dariabegi has to be the guy you consider the breakout, Chris. 10-4 overall, but more importantly, who did he beat? Andrew Zhang, experienced senior for Duke. Braden Schick, experienced player for NC State. To get wins over talented guys like a Togan Tokats, like an Anuj Watani, a Connor Krug, like Billy Blades was someone we both enjoyed watching a bunch at the end of last year. I think of all, like again, is there a world where, you mentioned earlier that maybe a freshman supplants who and plays four or plays a three. 
you were thinking of Daria Beggy, were you not? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's he's had a really good, you know, summer and fall. And, and I think that he's he's a guy. It's just the questions are always going to be how do the how do the freshmen, you know, how do they do it? But uh, I think I think he's going to hold up well. And he's the guy that I'm looking to. I just don't think that you start him there because you want to sort of ease these guys in as as freshmen. If you're if you're coach Goffey and and who should be both wanting and expecting to be the guy at four for them coming in. And so you let him start there and earn it. And if he earns it, he stays and you get the luxury of playing Daria Beggy at, at say at five. And, and then you're still going, Oh, okay. Now is it Yelani Sar or, or it, or is it uh, De Silva at, at six? Great luxury to have if that's, if that's where you're at. So yeah, he's, but he's definitely the guy like, and you pointed out some of those, some of those wins. I mean, he's shown he can beat, guys that are above the level that he'll be playing at say a five spot uh, as a freshman in college. So for sure, he's, he's somebody that I'm looking forward to seeing play. Only 11 matches for Dario Bakey at the pro level, but again, number 100 junior in the world was his career high. And I, I already mentioned the college, like he's proven he is a player in a rotation. I don't know if he's a top three player yet, but again, he is certainly someone you expect to see reps from. And then again, how about Yolani Saar? Like, decent fall for Yolani as well, certainly. 10-5 and five overall. And, you know, again, I don't know if there is a signature, signature victory for him. He had probably over Staheli, right, in three sets right away to start things off. But also beats Anuj Watani. You know, again, Alejandro Moreno at Auburn was a high recruit in his class who he got a win over, even though kind of a withdraw there. Like, what do you think about these freshmen who, by the way, it is just worth noting here, two American freshmen, Chris. And I, people who think college tennis is for Americans only, they don't have a spot on this podcast. As you know, college tennis is at its best because there is international flavor, not only the amalgamation of all these cultures. But you know what makes a product better? When you can get talent from everywhere in the world, not just talent from 500 million of it. But no, we can embrace the full 3.2 billion they landed two blue-chip American recruits, Chris. I'm not sure if Sar was a blue-chip or a five-star, but it just speaks to, again, people are starting to see this South Carolina program going. And when you're starting to land those blue chips, that's when you know. Right, Chris? Talk to me about this Yolani Sar. Uh, talk to me about Yolani Sar as well and what we can expect. Yeah, well, I mean, he did have some some very nice wins that you were talking about. Look, he, he, beat, he beat Anthrop, okay, yeah, uh, in one. a— in a, I think it was a 15K uh, over the summer. Uh, he beat a guy like Will Grant, who some people might go, oh, Will Grant has, since leaving Florida last year, has had a tremendous run on the pro circuit, uh, and, you know, and is doing very, very well. He, he you know, and he, he gets a nice win over Will Grant. He's got some good, he's got a win over Logan Zapp. I mean, uh, some very, very good wins. He beat Bonetto, he beat Preston Stearns, the Ohio State freshman, uh, I have Fabian Sala. I'm from, you know, Louisville, then Arizona State, then Louisville. Uh, some very, very good wins for Sar. I I absolutely, I mean, it's like, I guess I don't envy. I actually think, you know, the guy probably on the outside looking in of that top six discussion is De Silva, even though he's the guy with the most weapons, which makes it fascinating to me because if you want to use those weapons, I just don't think you want to play those weapons at six. So if you're going to get De Silva in the lineup, you're like, hey, Lucas, man, I need you playing like four, 
you gotta you gotta be the guy that can step up at play four because I'm gonna play myself an absolute grind at six because I know we can win down there uh, well, and I, can't afford to take the chance of your weapons aren't on and you're losing. That's a really good point. Again, it's a fascinating roster. It's a roster that evokes pre-COVID times where, dare I say, Chris, you have some uncertainty about who fits where outside of the top two, which, by the way, if we were doing preseason pods in 2017, 18, 19, we would have been having those conversations about all those teams. You know, I really like uh, I really like uh, who played one above Blumberg. I really like Schneider and Blumberg at one and two, but who's playing five and six? Should it be Murray? Should it be, you know, again, like we could have had those conversations about North Carolina teams of past or like, man, Robbie Loeb, Jan Zielinski, heck of a doubles team, but should Loeb really be playing six singles for these Georgia Bulldogs? Like those are the conversations we would have been having then. And it's just, it's fascinating to be back now. I'm not sure if I like it more or less, all of this uncertainty, but in that spirit, I ask, Who's the most valuable point in this lineup, Chris? Uh, well, I think it just has to be the three spot, which presumably is James Story. We, I, I'm absolutely certain, barring health concerns, that one and two are going to be like off the charts tremendous again. Doubles with them together is, you know, one of the one of the three. Now you just need to find someone in doubles. So I think I will say it's sort of a combo. They need its story at three and somebody to step in and prove to be, you know, a, you know, a 20 and five type doubles team. Because if you if you get another one of those with Samuel and Thompson, you're, you know, you're up 3-0 to start almost, you know, in 80 percent of your matches until you're playing, you know, top five level teams. And if you get story to, and if story stepping up to to the point where he's solid at three, now even in the cases where one of your top two loses, you've got him. You're just giving the luxury to those guys at four, five, six. That look, guys, probably if one of you wins, we're fine. Very rarely do we even need two. So somebody have a good day. And I, but I think story is the critical point. I'm gonna go in a direction we haven't gone yet. I you made an excellent case, by the way. I'm gonna go with doubles because. This is a team that was really good at doubles last year. Like this is a team yeah. that was winning one in three doubles and taking the one zero lead, and then Thompson and Samuel made it three, and then it was really like, okay, we have four spots to win one. They lost Lambling, who again with Hula last year sixteen and four at the number three spot. They lost to Jake Beasley, who with Story last year fifteen and ten at two, but again was just a big inning eater in the best way. You could roll Jake Beasley out at any of the doubles positions and know, okay, he will be he is going to more than hold his own at that spot. As fine as they have been in singles during the course of the fall, South Carolina went 10 and 9 in doubles this fall. They tried six different combinations, which by the way, when you have five total players and you're trying six combinations, you're throwing some shit at the board. Chris Halioris, and I just do wonder again, Coach Goffey, to his credit, rolls the ball out as he see it. There's no lineup chicanery. There's no, you know, sacrifice this spot to win there. He is going to play his six best players, one through six as he sees fit, and he's going to roll with the doubles teams as he sees fit. My question is, will he split up Thompson and Samuel? And is that something he needs to consider exploring, especially early in the season where you might be asking one, if not two freshmen, not just new pieces to a doubles lineup, Chris, but two freshmen to step in. You know what would really help me if I'm Sean Dariabagi is if Connor Thompson is doing Connor Thompson things next to me. And then all I have to worry about is playing tennis or if I know, hey, 
it's cute that they're very good, but I'm partnered with Toby Samuel. So we have the best player on the court, so we should win this doubles match every time. And I just wonder, and I don't mean to say stubbornness out of Coach Goffey, but like the stubbornness of knowing, hey, I have the best doubles team in the country sitting on my roster. Do you experiment with them to try and see if there are better doubles permutations to get you to two out of the three sets? Not just the 1-0 lead, but two out of the three. I think this team, again, because if they're winning doubles, you could argue this team's deeper than last year. Like that this South Carolina team is better than last year's on paper and singles. I don't know, man. What's your thoughts? Well, I agree. They're better in, on paper and singles. Uh the loss of Lambling is is a hurt in doubles, but and if Coach Goffey does it uh, and it works, then it shows why he's the coach and we're not. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> under zero circumstance do I split Samuel and Thompson up. Uh, you like you only need two, and you've got one that's an almost lock. It's yeah. like taking, you know, it's like they say in football, right? You never take points off the board. You kick a field goal, you get a penalty. No, you leave the points on the board. I'm taking the points on the board. And look, we talked about Lucas De Silva and a guy with big weapons. He, you know, he went, I'm going to throw out the Carter Morgan doubles experiment. No disrespect to Carter, but that's just, you know, he's not there. Carter, if you're on social media, everything to Chris. I'll take yeah, James exactly. Black, but that goes to Chris. But but for De Silva, between playing with Casey Houle and Yolani Sargo, six and one in doubles this fall, he's going to be the guy probably that they're going to say who pairs well with Lucas De Silva, he played, like I said, he played with Saar and he played with Hool. Let's see how that goes. I think what you're doing uh, early on in the season there is is figuring out who's going to be that team to be, you know, a rock solid two and then somebody else that could fill in at three before you go splitting them up. I could see maybe in some matches that you know you're going to win experimenting with Samuel and Thompson, with other people. The problem is if you're doing it in matches that you know you're going to win, you're probably not getting the best level of competition. So you're not sure what you're really seeing. I don't do that. I go with the best teams I've got. And the best chance I've got is taking the point that I think is a lock and going, look, one of you other two is going to win. You got to do it. Here's the problem with that as well, to your point of why they can't afford to experiment. Look at the schedule. Like, where's the room to, to maneuver? Like, yeah, there's a doubleheader against the Citadel on Wednesday, February 28th. Other than that, there is no room for negotiation, Chris. I mean, sure, it's a regular season match. You take all of them with a grain of salt. But here are their non-conference matches. At Virginia, Sunday, January 21st. Not going to play. I mean, you're playing around with the lineup because it's your first match of the season, yeah. but like no. you ain't playing with the lineup. You're playing with the lineup, not playing with it. Kickoff weekend. They get Clemson in that opening match, a Clemson team that is building some talent, certainly on the rise. Then they'd face the winner if they win that of LSU and Louisville. Now, Louisville lost a bunch of pieces, but LSU's another team. Just like they're on the rise. I got some feeling that Danny Bryan's cooking something up special for the Tigers. Maybe not this season, but. That's a team to watch moving forward. After that is where you start to laugh. There are three non-Citadel, non-conference matches in February. NC State at home, Wake Forest at home, uh, at Ohio State. Yeah. Now, I've said it on this podcast already. If South Carolina goes and wins at Ohio State, they become my pick to win the national championship. It's that simple. Just look at how history works. 
where are you experimenting, Chris? Like, no, where's the yeah. double headers, or where? What yeah, am I missing? I mean, obviously, you're not experimenting with anything at Ohio State. You're talking about trying to experiment with doubles against NC State. I don't think so. That's one of the best doubles, you know. You, with when you got Coach Spencer and the system they've got there, there, there's there's no room to experiment with doubles there. There, I mean, you're going to be scratching, clawing to get even your top spot with those guys. So, uh, and then Wake, and Lord knows, you know what kind of what kind of roster we're going to see uh, out of Wake. But no, that's there. You're right. There's no experimenting. And then if you choose to experiment with Citadel, you're not going to learn anything. Like I don't, I don't know what you expect to learn in, in that doubleheader. Sure, the they probably pull Samuel and Thompson all together and let other guys play, but it's no different than what they did in the fall without them. They're gonna okay, they're gonna get some reps, but the competition is not gonna be any better than it was then. So yeah, I, I'm with you. There's not, uh, you know, then then they hit March in the SEC schedule, and and that's it. So. I, to your point, it's another reason that I say, no, you're, you're playing Samuel and Thompson if they're both healthy and, and then you're going to figure out which, which of the other teams is going to step up. That is actually Chris, that's, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful or, uh, I'm not trying to talk down to you, uh, be uh, what's the word there? Um, it starts with a C I'm, I'm blanking on it right now. I'm not trying to be anyways, condescending, condescending. Thank you. <laughs> Even in not knowing the word condescending, I'm trying to be condescending there, but, um, you're a hundred percent right. Like that's actually the case right there is like, boys, you got the Buckeyes on the schedule. We need Thompson and Samuel to give us a half point there. And then we may play around with two and three, but let's roll out the boys at one and work with that point and put the points on the board, as you said earlier. It's like Euchre when you have the right bower and you just want to play it right away. It's like, give me the one. Let's draw some stuff out. Let's get that out of the way. One oh, good guys. That's an excellent argument by you. That's actually, you've convinced me. I just want you to know, like, it's rare that I'm off. Like, we come out of this, and I'm like, oh, I'm wrong. Like, Chris is right. Um, you're a, the, perfectly put. Coach Goffey, take the note. There's a co- Oh, he said it on the pod, so I can say it. Harry Jaden said last year there was a point where when they were trying to come up with their doubles lineup, they just went to chat GPT and asked, what should our doubles lineup be? And I said the GPT stands for Gruskin's Potential Theories. And <laughs> this is a gr- – I'm going to take that as my own and say that's a Gruskin Potential Theory. Samuel Thompson at one. It's the Chris Hallioris uh, uh, amendment because that's a really good point by you. And look again, like – we talk about the schedule already, the non-conference matches. If they make the national indoors, that's three more top 16 matchups for what it's worth. SEC-wise, A&M's at home, Kentucky's at home, Tennessee and Florida on the road this year. I mean, there are highest Mississippi ranked— Mississippi State at home. Yeah, yeah. spoil—oh, Mississippi State at home as well. Thank you. I can't believe I forgot that one. But spoiler alert, they're our highest-ranked SEC team. Like— Chris Alioris, I ask you, what's the inflection point match, the one you're watching for most closely as it relates to this team? Well, I I think the match that I have to I have to be anticipating the most has to be the pre-SEC match at Ohio State, just because none of us saw them really knocking off Ohio State at home last year. Uh and and it was, you know, I'm I'm not gonna say it was a, a you know a trouncing or anything, but it wasn't like it was you know, a four hour nail biter at four, three either. Like they just, they put, they put the work in uh, on Ohio state at home and there's gotta be, you know, a lot of those same guys on both sides are around. There's definitely going to be a little bit of uh, you know, a little bit of, you know, revenge on the mind of Ohio state there. Uh, so I think, I think from a pre and who knows what's going to happen for indoors pre sec schedule, 
that's the one I'm I'm looking at. And then I I think for me in the SEC, um, it's there to me. It's the two matches: the home match with Mississippi State and the road match at Tennessee. I think that's going to define what you know. I think even if they, assuming again that we have a completely healthy top two because they depend on them so much. Uh, and we just haven't seen them this fall, really. But if those two are healthy, if they at least split those two matches, which, I mean, they should at least split them, I think they've got to be the odds-on favorite for the conference. Yeah, I, I just you start to talk ceiling and floor with this team. And look, every team you say an injury away from a disaster. Of course, this team is, again, it's only eight guys on the roster. It is a little thin right away off the top. And certainly it does feel like the drop-off between what Samuel and Thompson, their credibility at one and two, and the rest of the six guys on the roster, there is a delta there, certainly between that group and, you know, top two, other six. But, man, like, the ceiling for this team is win the SEC. The ceiling, and not just the SEC, like, regular season, win the SEC tournament as well. You have the experience, right? Story, Thompson, Samuel, they're seniors. They're fourth years. This is their time. They're a group that, by the way, Lost last year, first round to UNC at National Indoors, but or maybe it was Georgia. I forget what that meant. I think it was UNC, actually. Uh, was it UNC or Georgia, Chris? I'm going to let you be the I think it was Georgia. Final answer is going to be Georgia 4-3. That's my guess, is they lost that one 4-3. And I want to say it was Bride who clinched at the number three spot, actually, if memory is serving me correctly. Ah, I'm looking. So indoors was first round Georgia. Yep, it was Georgia. Okay, shout out to me. My brain still works, but I think they won their next two matches after that as well, and did go two and one there. Yeah, yeah, they beat Baylor and North Carolina. What I'm trying to say is they understand how to negotiate the national indoors scene. This is a group that, by the way, has made the final site now. Each of the last, uh, in two of the last three seasons, excuse me, the round of 16 loss at Virginia in 2022 being the exception to that. This group has seen the best. They understand what it takes to be the best, at least at the top. And again, how quickly can you get guys like Hool, like Sar, like, you know, again, all these new contributors up to speed right away? That probably defines their ceiling. But man, if you're Coach Goffey, the floor for you is top eight seed. Like, if you are not hosting the first three rounds of the NCAA tournament, I think you're disappointed with your regular season, right, Chris? I feel like that's the floor argument, at the very least for me. Ceiling starts to get a little cloudy with everyone because we haven't talked about our top four yet, and they're pretty darn good. And so, like, is anyone ceiling that's not a top four quarterfinals? Maybe that's a take we're going to think we're most wrong about as we look back at 2024. But where are you with the ceiling floor of this group? Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably the, in in my mind, and I always think a little bit bigger, wider. I think uh, than what you're where you're going. I don't the ceiling. I think is I don't think there is a ceiling. I mean, if 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 these guys if if they're clicking, they they could win it all. I mean, you know, if Samuel Thompson and doubles come around, how, how could you not think you have a chance to win it all? It's going to be really tough to do that. Like, I'm not going to give them a great percentage, but they absolutely. I mean, they're probably the first team that we've come to, you know, out so far that I would say, yeah, they legitimately could win a national title with, mm. with if all the pieces click here. Spicy. So, so I don't think there's really a ceiling floor. Uh, if everyone's healthy, I'm absolutely with you. There's no way they're not a top eight. Uh, if there are a few lingering injuries, I think legitimately like 
maybe 12 is about as low as they could possibly go. Anything outside of that is like catastrophic in, you know, there's it's Toby went down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, one one of the top two guys has got problems if they're not in the top 12. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there. Again, it feels like a higher floor team. And let me ask you this. Do they have the highest floor in the SEC? I, like, is it them? I, I think there's three teams. It's them. It's Tennessee, who we talked about their starters and the depth they bring back last episode. And then from a pure floor perspective, I know who Mississippi State is. Like, they are who they yeah. were last season. I actually, you could argue maybe they have the highest floor. And that's where I want to, again, sneak in a little SEC talk here to end. Is it South Carolina? Is it Mississippi State? Like, what what is the floor for them in the conference? I think, I think South Carolina is probably... I mean, it depends on how you want to make the argument, right? If I want to make the argument for South Carolina, it's obviously contingent on Samuel and Thompson being healthy. But if Samuel and Thompson are healthy, they're just too good and too known at the top two spots and one one slot in doubles to say that the floor could be any lower. Now, if you want to go for the argument is, yeah, but what happens when you know, one guy goes down and it's that, you know, and it's one of those two guys, the that Mississippi state roster is much more level. Yes. They've got every, they know everybody, they've got them all back. And look, I fully expect the guy that played one last year to be playing like four potentially this year for them. Um, you know, three, four, wherever they want to slide him in. It's a, it's a roster they know and, and should have a, you know, a pretty high floor as well. Though the unknown for them is going to be how will they be able to compete at the top when they're probably playing, uh, you know, the combination of Jovanovic and and incoming transfer from Presbyterian Dusan Milanovic at the one two spot. Obviously, you're not going to say, yeah, they're Samuel Thompson caliber, right? You they're going to have to prove that. So so it's going to make it a little tougher there. I you have to lean South Carolina, but yeah, those to me are the two teams that would that have to have the highest floor. Yeah, that's that's uh, it's fascinating to me because again, you're right. This is a team that when you start to look at the ceiling, you're like, man, if one or both of those freshmen click, hmm, like really really yeah, this team could be crazy good. Yeah, because Hool and again, we have seen James Story have success. Casey Hool maybe a little bit less so, but I don't feel bad about Casey Hool coming into this season. And I know I know how much Josh Goffey has loved him from freshman year, and he was very honest with us, not at, you know behind the scenes. Look, need a little development. He got some good development freshman year. He was admirable last year. I expect to keep seeing that progression. And when I know when when I've got a guy like like Coach Goffey, that's a very good assessment of talent. That's Jets continues to remain high on the kid. I think I think I can expect that he's gonna he's gonna do his job. And you've almost talked me out of Lucas De Silva, which is where I started this podcast. No, I don't. Like, yeah, he's the I, breakout, and like I like him. Yeah, but, it is, but it's just the guy. I mean, he's yeah. the guy we've seen the least of of all those sure. returners, right? I mean, we just—it's the unknowns. And yeah, to your point, he could jump up and go, "Yep, I'm battling for three, four with the weapons I've got and the size," and and it could very well be the case. We just we're gonna have to wait and see. Absolutely. Well, then, with that said, folks, that is your in-depth look. At number six, South Carolina. And as you've noticed, these podcasts have started to get a little longer, right? As we get closer to our number one preseason team, that's because the debates become that much more enjoyable and certainly 
If you have any thoughts at home on this South Carolina team or on any of the teams we've discussed thus far, let us know. Tweet at us at Crack Rackets, at A.L. Gruskin, at College Tennis Ranks. You can use Instagram, other profiles as well. Again, all social media criticism at College Tennis Ranks or at Parson Namadi. All things you think we do well at A.L. Gruskin is always much appreciated. I'd like to live in that bubble. Um, Chris Elliers, did we miss anything? on today's podcast any final thoughts on the Gamecocks or any final thoughts on where we go from here do not think we missed anything I'll just say you know I love to poke fun at Gruskin math for those that have stayed with us from the beginning we were not halfway through then we are halfway through now (laughs) (laughs) so so with that being said we'll look forward to the top five on that, on that, let me just say A, f*** you, and B, that was really funny. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Um, you're absolutely right. Now we are officially at the halfway mark as, again, we have our top five teams next to come. And I won't lie, I think we're going to have a little bit of a change of the schedule this week. Jay a little bit under the weather, so he's going to be joining me later in the week. You may be getting a double dose of Chris Helios tomorrow. By the way, this is the first time Chris has heard this news. So shout out to him, as always, for his efforts. A shout out, of course, as well to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A thank you to him as he keeps us busy. We're three podcasts wide. Just released a Cracked Interviews podcast today with Harry Jaden. We've got more of those on the horizon. Mini breaks day in, day out. And then, of course, again, we will continue to count down our top 10 teams here on this podcast until we reach our preseason number one. Chris Halioris, I mean, again. Any final thoughts before we wrap today's show? Anything we missed, whether it be from takes we got wrong right last season, things you got to throw in before we go? Uh, well, I, I I alluded to it, but I did say, obviously, my other incorrect take was the fact that I took Michigan <laughs> for the national championship. That didn't come true. But if it was just, if, if all that was was an omen and a prelude to Trevor ending up in Michigan, I'll take it for what, for what I got. <laughs> yeah, it may not have worked from a prediction standpoint, but I'll tell you what, Nephew's got some real good health care now. Chris <laughs> Hallioris. So, yeah, I suppose in the end, we all did win. But yes, with all that said, for the fantastic Chris Hallioris, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Chris, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, Great shot. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.